This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladayan. Hello, 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 hello. I don't know how many times I've said hello. I don't really, I don't, I've lost track at this point. I, I've completely forgotten how to introduce a show. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a sliding scale that goes from two hellos to about nine, and it ends up somewhere in between, and I get hate, hate comments and death threats for it, you know? Sure, sure. That, that's, but that's just part of life, you know? Anyways, you're listening to Fans on the Run. I'm Ethan Alexanian. That is my name. That is how you say it. Um... We we are joined by a very, very, very cool guest today. Mystery guest, how would you describe yourself? Um, hmm. I'm never, never really asked that. Um, There's a first for everything. Uh, I, I mean, I'm kind of entrepreneurial. I'm, I'm a big Beatles collector and started Beatles suits about 20 I'd years ago. Fu- I'd fucking say so. Big Beatles collector. Yeah, um... Uh, I guess in terms of your show, I guess that's how I would describe myself. More, more so as a collector than anything really regarding Beetlesuits. That was that's kind of maybe on a lesser scale. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm an original Beetle fan. I I saw the original Sullivan show, so obviously I'm a little older than you are. Um, Don't get too ahead of yourself here. I have questions. <laughs> okay, no problem. Shoot away. But anyways. He's a collector who has been a kind of curator for very important pieces in Beatles history. He runs Beatlesuits.com. Would you please give him a warm welcome and a round of applause? I'll edit in the applause sound here to Russ Lees. Russ, welcome to Fans on the Run. Thank you, Ethan. I I look forward to it, and uh, I'm glad we had a chance to talk. Happy to be here. Uh, well, we did have a chance to talk with all the technical difficulties. <laughs> that is true. Right. We know each other a little bit better than we would have an hour ago. Yeah, we're kind of war buddies now. But enough about that. I want to ask about you. Sure. How are you, how are you doing these um, days? Doing good, surviving the COVID situation pretty well. Um uh, but, of course, I'm not going anywhere, and every day is Groundhog Day. So uh, yeah. so it's actually, this is kind of a nice um, difference, a nice uh, alternative to what I probably would be doing otherwise right now. So this is great. Well, I'm, I'm glad I can provide some sort of alternative for you. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to jump right back to the beginning, right back you to, you alluded to the uh, Sullivan show. I want to ask you. How did you first discover the Beatles? Um, well, I guess it was via the radio. I'm sure I heard uh, a couple things on the radio immediately prior to the Sullivan Show. But I remember leading up to the Sullivan Show that prior week, um, I remember watching an ad that said Topo Gigio was going to be on the show. And he's this little mouse character. Yeah that would occasionally be on, and that was a typical show that we would be watching on a Sunday night at 8 o'clock with the family. I was, uh, what was I, I guess I was about seven at the time, and I always thought the little Topo Gigio mouse was fun. So when I, uh, when I 
so I oh actually I what the ad I heard was that the Beatles were going to be on, and I thought this was part of the Topo Gigio thing. He was a mouse, and then there were going to be these Beatles, as in Bug, and that's what I was looking forward to. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, and I have an older sister that's 10 years older than me, and she said something about the Beatles being one, and she was kind of excited for it. And I, I was kind of scratching my head thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Why would she be into one of these little puppet things? And it wasn't until it came on that night that obviously I found out that it was something completely different. And that the Beatles were not, in fact... Puppet mice. We're not in or puppet puppets. And when they sang, I do recall hearing one or two of those songs on the radio within maybe the last two weeks prior to that. And um, and I love the music. And then when you saw them visually and you attach that to the music, it was like the coolest thing I ever saw. It's like um, it's kind of like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz when things go from black and white to color. It really was kind of that way that night. And Even though the Ed Sullivan show was still in black and white. Well, that's true, but it went to color for me. So, yeah. um, and I guess that was really the first time that music meant that much to me. Uh, prior to that, you know, I'd be in the car with a parents or something, radio would be one, and some songs I liked, some songs I didn't, but I didn't really know who they who the artists were. It just didn't wasn't something that mattered to me until that night, until February 9th, 1964, and then everything changed. So, in a nutshell, that that's was kind of my reaction. What was the first Beatle record that you remember getting? Uh, it would have been a 45 because um, uh, money was kind of tight in my family when I was growing up, so just going out and buying a Beatle album was not going to be something that was going to happen anytime soon. I'm sure it yeah. was probably the single to I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I'm sure it wasn't mine at the age of seven. I'm sure I confiscated it from my older sister and also had an older brother that's five years older than me. I'm sure some of those things were in the family because of them, not because of me. Yeah. But you, you've liberated them. Uh, yes, on a temporary basis, numerous times. Yes. Yeah. And then well, eventually we did get the Meet the Beatles album. And I remember that just played and played and played all the time. Between the three of us, it was like never off the turntable. Because say what you will about the, the Capitol albums, I don't think there there's any other album that could have introduced the Beatles as well to an American audience than I, Meet the Beatles. I agree. I agree. Whereas whereas the Please 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 Me album in Great Britain is a great album, but it's not... But I totally agree with you. If that had been the opening album, obviously they still would have been successful, but it, it wasn't quite as dynamic as Meet the Beatles. I mean, what we got up here in Canada was, uh, you know, just the British with the Beatles album, with just a slightly different cover. But I think, I still think Meet the Beatles was a better introduction. Right. Because he, he had I Want to Hold Your Hand... You had this boy, you had I Saw Her Standing There, you know. Right, right. Uh, certainly more originals than what the English Please Please Me album would have been, which was mostly covers. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I'm not a particularly big fan of the British Please Please Me album. Okay. At, 
as hard as it may be to hear for some people. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled, actually, that you're a big Beatle fan. Uh, because, really? Well, uh, yes, because it's, well, not, not should I say thrilled. It's nice to hear young people who really get into the music probably in a similar way that we did way back in the 60s. Of course. There's tons of us. Well, right. There are. There are. And it's it's a pleasure actually speaking with those tons of you. So that's what I meant by that. I speak on behalf of all of us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Um, But so you grew up with the Beatles in the 60s. What was it like, you know, listening to their music, probably on the radio, and hearing them evolve from, you know, I want to hold your hand to I feel fine, where it gets a little bit weird, and then we can work it out, and then paperback writer. What was it like hearing this band evolve in front of you? it, It wasn't a situation of me being able to acquire the albums or the singles when they came out. Uh Um, Basically, I had to wait for a birthday or for Christmas. And whatever the newest album or newest single would be, I would be able to get my hands on it at that point. But, you know, my parents weren't going to just rush me out to, you know, the 5 and 10 store and buy me a record because it was already out. So most of my listening certainly in, in the course of a timeline, would have been on the radio. So yeah. when, you know, I Feel Fine came out or She Loves You came out or whatever it was, um, I was aware of it from the radio. And I certainly, from the Sullivan Show on, listened to the radio a whole lot more than I did um, prior to that. So um, mm-hmm. uh, I loved it. Everything that came out that was new and every progressive little step was wonderful until they got to Sgt. Pepper. And I hated it. You hated Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. Uh, and I did because everything changed. They went from the fun-loving little mop top, you know, uh, Hard Day's Night uh, image to these older guys with mustaches. And the music was completely different. And it took me probably a few years to sort of get into Pepper. But once I did, I certainly recognize it as an enormous step forward and I couldn't get it off the turntable and it was wonderful. But as a kid, well, some easy seven, eight, nine, I guess I was about 10 years old when Pepper came out. And like I said, for at least a year, I hated it. I listened to all the early stuff, but I wasn't ready for psychedelia. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, And like I said, it took a little while, but that did eventually change. So do you remember where you were or what point in your life you were when you heard that the Beatles had broken up? Yes. I was in, uh, I think, um, ninth grade, I believe. And uh, I think I heard it in the cafeteria of my junior high school because when we would have lunch, they would pipe in the radio over the um, loudspeaker system in the cafeteria. And I remember them coming on and, and talking about it. And it completely deflated me. So th- I guess this would have been April 1970. Yeah. Uh, so if you're asking me when I first heard that news, it, it would have been then. would have been in school. Definitely. Well, with you, when it comes to uh, the Beatles' history, I, th- I think you have a a pretty unique perspective 
because over the years you've actually been a, a curator of this history by owning, you know, a lot of these iconic pieces of Beatles memorabilia, you know, a couple suits, a, uh, one of the Shea Stadium jackets, the drum head, all that kind of stuff. Right. Well, I became fascinated back in the, I guess it was the late 70s, uh, because prior to the late 70s, there was no such thing as rock and roll memorabilia. It was yeah. just a suit and a jacket and a drum head. It was, it was no big deal. But yeah. um, uh, Sotheby's kind of dabbled its toe in that kind of thing and mixing some of the lots of rock and roll memorabilia into their regular auctions. And they found that when they did, especially if it was a Beatle piece, it, it, it drew tremendous interest. Um, and then eventually they put together an entire auction that was all uh, Beatles, or all music-related stuff, but probably half of it was Beatles. And again, they got tremendous interest, and, and actually they got really good prices for it, and that kind of kicked the whole thing off. And What was the first piece that you remember buying? Well, uh, actually, the, the, okay, you're, so you're talking about other than mass-produced pieces? Other yes. than albums and banners and all that kind of... Yeah. Um, the Not first the bobbleheads and stuff. Right. Uh, the, okay, so the first one-of-a-kind piece was... Um, it was actually... It was a piece of sheet music for Lennon's song, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Really? Uh, signed on the cover by Lennon, and I bought it at an auction at a Beatle Fest. And this was when Lennon was alive, so this probably would have been in about 78, I think. Mm -hmm. And I also bought that same day a just a, a blank piece of paper with McCartney's signature on it. But it came with four photographs of him on the street in New York with a black flare pen in his hand signing that particular piece of paper. The, the person he gave it to took a handful of pictures while he was signing it. Uh, I, I guess as evidence that it really was one of his signatures. Um, I think I paid $50 for the McCartney and maybe like 60 for the Lennon. Um, really? This was at an auction at Beetlefest in New York. And when I got back home... Um, I guess a couple of days later, I was over at my parents' house, and I was talking to my mother in the kitchen, and I told her what I bought, and I showed it to her. And she asked me what I paid for it, and I, I, the two combined, I think, were, like I said, sixteen fifty, so it would have been $110. And she looked at me like I was completely out of my mind that I blew $110 on these two signature pieces. And um, and she thought I was crazy. So they would have actually been the first two. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have either one of those because I, much later on, I ended up uh, selling them uh, for, as you can imagine, many times what I paid for them. Um, but that would have been the first two. And then that was shortly after that is when the auction houses started getting involved and then it really kind of opened my eyes and I realized you could actually bid on things that were personally there, something they owned or played or something they wore and I was completely fascinated by that and that's what started all the sort of one-of-a-kind things. And it was happening at a time for me as an adult then that I did have a little bit of 
capital to um, to invest in. Whereas, you know, people I knew and went to school with and all that were beginning to invest in, in either the stock market or or CDs or or things like CDs. I mean, deposit CDs. Um, yeah. Instead, my extra capital, whatever I could scrape together, was always put into Beatles um, memorabilia through the auction houses. Um, so, uh, and and actually, I ended up making out a lot better than anybody that was working in the stock market at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, and and that's just what I collected, you know. And I knew they were investments. I mean, I bought them as investments, but you know, it's an investment that you can really sort of appreciate personally at the same time rather than a stock certificate that what are you going to do hang it on the wall or put it in a file drawer so <clears throat> what was the first really big purchase you made at an auction house for a, a piece of Beatles memorabilia well I guess it depends what your definition of really big is I mean in my eyes the first super serious piece that I got was the drum head and that, that would have been in 94 at an auction through Sotheby's in England. Um, uh, how, did, how did that happen? Uh, well... <clears throat> and just for the record, the viewers out there, we're talking about the 1964 Ed Sullivan Show drumhead. Right. Uh, the, the one with the Drop-T logo on the front. Yeah. Um, well, there were seven with Drop-T logos. Well, yes. Okay, okay, but there's only one Sullivan Drop-T logo. Yes. Uh, well, I guess there's two if you count the one from the 65 salt. But anyway, um, I was, um, let me see, 94. I had been writing at that point for a number of years for a couple different magazines. I wrote the auction columns for um, two or three different magazines. And then I started writing for Beatleology magazine, which unfortunately no longer exists. But for about a 10-year, 10, 10- or 12-year period. It, I think it was probably the best mag the best sort of Beatle-related magazine that was on the market. Anyway, I used to write their auction columns, and I would occasionally write cover stories and things like that as well. But So the point was I would get advanced catalogs from the auction houses because the auction houses all knew that I wrote the auction column for the magazine. So uh, I just remember getting the, the catalog for that particular sale, and that drumhead being in there. However, that the drumhead was pictured, and there was a caption with it, but it, it didn't relate to being the Ed Sullivan drumhead at the time. Nobody knew that it was. Nobody had done any kind of a study. Nobody knew that there were only seven drumheads. Mm -hmm. it, it was just listed as a very likely uh, authentic Beatle drumhead because of the provenance, because of where it came from. Yes. Um, so I had about maybe five weeks to um, to research that particular drumhead because, like I said, it was pictured in the catalog, so I knew exactly what it looked like. Um, and, you know, it wasn't rocket science. I mean, the Beatles are the most photographed band on the planet. So mm -hmm. um, by the time the day of the auction rolled around, I personally was 95% sure that it was the drumhead from the Ed Sullivan show. And, and it was on that basis that I bid on it. Um, but I don't think many other people knew. Um, although the bidding, um, I guess, uh, well, I paid a fair amount of money for it, but... You don't have to say the exact amount. Okay. Uh, but from about halfway through the bidding until the completion, 
it was really between me and one other person. And I was doing it on the phone, and I don't know whether that other person was on the phone or was live in, in the, uh, the auction house. Um, but it went back and forth between us, and I ended up getting it with what would have definitely been my very, very last um, bid because it was, it was all the money that I could liquidly scape, scrape together at the time. So if, if, if the other person had gone one more increment, I would have had to have, been dropped, had to have dropped out. So, um, so I was pretty lucky. I did get it. In addition to the, the Sullivan head, what are some of the other kind of really cool pieces of Beatle history that you've had in your collection at points over the years? Um, well, you, you mentioned earlier uh, the McCartney Shea jacket. Yeah. Um, I, I do still have that. The uh, uh, Ringo's Crosswalk jacket, uh, the, <laughs> the long black jacket that he's wearing on the cover of the uh, Abbey Road album. Uh, I have a suit that Ringo wears on a hard day's night through all the train scenes and all, all of that. Uh, and that I actually got directly from Ringo. Um, a lot of contractual sort of things, performance contracts and things like that. I have a handful of, of that kind of stuff. Um, I have a, a pair of lens glasses, uh, prescription glasses, the little round granny glasses. Oh, wow. Um, what else? Uh, I'm sure I'm missing things, uh, yeah. but uh, those are probably the best things. And that you know, I guess it comes in different tiers. Those were probably the primo pieces that I've had over the years, and and but lots of other stuff besides that, mm -hmm. on on maybe a lesser scale. So, the late '90s, early 2000s, uh, I I had heard you on another show say that your background was in men's fashion. When when was the first time you ever attempted to make a Beatles suit? Like, this could be pre-Beatles suits, but, you know, for sure. your own enjoyment. Like, let's try and make one that looks like this. Right. Um, well, when I say I had a background in, in the men's clothing industry, my brother and I owned a clothing store right outside of Washington, D.C. In a, in a major mall. Actually... At one time, it was the largest mall uh, east of the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. um, and so I certainly had a, a retail background from, from a, a fashion point of view, but we also did some private label manufacturing that we also sold in the store. So I did have a little bit of manufacturing and design work background. Um, and um, uh, I also did all the alterations for the store, so I do have a little bit of tailoring background as well. So... Uh, so the formation of Beetlesuits was really a combined effort of whatever knowledge the men's clothing industry provided me, both on the retail and manufacturing end, and of course my love for the Beatles and the collecting and the fact that I had a handful of the original jackets and suits my own. The first thing I made was the uh, Shea jacket, because <laughs> I always thought it would be cool to have one for myself. One of these days, I will own one of your... Um, replica shea jackets you definitely will we'll see that that happens well uh, <laughs> i'm i'm still saving up for it okay okay well we'll talk all fair um so so i guess that was you know we made maybe two or three prototypes and tweaked each one 
and adjusted the pattern. The, I mean, the, obviously, the good part was that I had an original in my hands. Yeah. So creating the pattern, that obviously drastically makes creating the pattern a whole lot easier because the alternative to that is to try and work from photographs or film footage. Yeah. That, that's very difficult because you always get things wrong. Number one, you can't see the inside of the coat, so you don't know what the construction in there is like. Most people are photographed from the front, so you don't a lot of times get to see what the back of the coat looks like in terms of patterns and scenes and all that. So having an original coat in my hands made it a whole lot easier. I hired a master tailor that had more experience um, than me even in in terms of pattern making and we worked on it together. Like I said, made a couple prototypes, tweaked it until we thought the pattern was perfect and then I hired a uh, um, a manufacturing company to produce a small run of them. I guess the first run was maybe about 30 jackets. And um, I started doing a little bit of advertising and I sold them out like instantly. Uh, about half of them went to bands. And actually, with regard to the history of Beetle Suits, which goes back almost 20 years now, of my the volume that I've done, probably about half of it has gone to trip bands. Well, I, I I, I've, oh, I've talked to members uh, on the show before of both the Fab Four oh, yeah. and 1964, the tribute. Right, right. And your name has come up. Right, right okay. Um, yeah, well, Mark Benson from 1964 actually... That's the one. Probably the one person who pushed me the most to, to get into doing the suits. Um, be because what they would do is they would go to Salvation Army stores and consignment shops, and they would buy old 60s suits and then they would take it to a local tailor and try to English them up by putting, you know, velvet on the collars or velvet on yeah. the cuffs. And that's what they would take the stage with because there was nobody making any of the stuff. Beetle no. suits was, was the very first company to ever make a, a replica beetle jacket. So, um, and now it's like a cottage industry. Well, there's a number of companies that do it now. Yes. I mean, right. none we do it first. as well as beetle suits. Well, in most cases, they don't, and the, the simple reason is because, for the most part, I make mine from originals. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's not a suit or a jacket that's in my own personal collection, I know a lot of collectors, just through what I've been doing for decades, uh, and I know a lot of where the other um, original suits are. For, for instance, there's a collector that lives in Cincinnati who, um, who has uh, Harrison's, a uh, suit from the debut from the February uh, 9th at Sullivan show. So really? When we, so when we made our Sullivan suit, I was able to get together with him and photograph and take all the specs off the jacket, basically do the same thing that I did with the Shea jacket when we made our Sullivan suits. So and, and across the board, every time we've made a suit or a jacket, I've had the original in my hands with one exception, and that's the Budokan suit, because there really were only four of those. And um, and I we don't know where any of them are, with the exception of Ringo's, which is still owned by Ringo. Mm -hmm. um, so in that case, I did have to work from film footage and photographs. But short of that, every other jacket we've made, um, um, I've had the original in my hands. Either it was mine or I, a collector was nice enough to allow even, me. Even even the rubber sole John jacket. Yeah, Rubber Soul Jacket, the original one, is owned by Hard Rock Cafe. I was going to say. And I, I wanted to make that for many years, but I was, again, as I described earlier, I was afraid to do it from photographs because I would get something wrong. Yeah. 
So um, when I found out where the coat was in that it was owned by Hard Rock Cafe, I contacted them. And they told me it was on exhibit at a Hard Rock Cafe in Sydney, Australia. And I was welcome to go see it if I wanted. I said, no, 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 I'm not hopping a jet to Sydney for that. Um, but they told me, it was a guy named Jeff Nolan who uh, works down at the Hard Rock headquarters down in Orlando. He and I have a, a pretty good relationship. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Jeff told me that they do periodically rotate their major pieces around through all the hard rocks and that if it ever leaves Sydney and comes any closer, he would let me know. So about two years went by and then he called me out of the blue one day and said, um, hey Russ, guess what? The hard rock or the rubber sole jacket is going to be going out to the hard rock in Maui in Hawaii. But before it does that, it's coming here to the Hard Rock headquarters in Orlando. It'll be here for two weeks before we send it out. So he gave me the dates. I said, okay, I'll be down. And, and the next week I, I flew down to Orlando, and, and they brought it out to me, and I got to, like I said, photograph it and measure it and take all the specs off of it. And then we got serious with making a pattern and making the replicas. Oh, wow. And So you kind of collaborated with the Hard Rock Cafe in that way. Oh, uh, well, they gave me the, yeah, they gave me access to it. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is, that is just so cool. So. It's, I've, I've only ever seen these kind of beetle suit examples from behind glass and, you know, you, you own one of them. You well, own probably more than one of them. Um, yeah, and, and I've sold a few over the years, too. I also had one of Lennon's colonel suits from 1963. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I didn't mention that earlier. And that one, actually, I sold back to Yoko. Jeez, uh, when was that? I guess that was in the mid-'90s, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, she found out that I had that, and, uh, you know, she wanted it back for, you know, her collection, uh, you know, for John. So we... We negotiated for like a week or so, and we came to a figure that was mutually acceptable, and, and I sold it back to her. So, uh, And that was that was actually a great thing, because if it were to leave my hands, certainly that's where I would want it to go. Yes, go back to the family. Go back to the family, exactly right, exactly right. I knew Yoko would take care of it and protect it, and, and if she put it on exhibit somewhere, a lot more people would get to see it than if I did. So, yeah. Yeah, so it worked out really well. And it was only a couple of years ago you sold the uh, Ed Sullivan drum head to what's his name? I uh, Jim, for, Jim Ursay. the Indianapolis Colts guy. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah, that was in November of 2015. So it was. So this November will be five years. Mm-hmm. That man seems to have an addiction to buying Beatles stuff. Well, music stuff in general, but he well, he, he does paid have, like four. Four million dollars for the David Gilmore Strat. Yes, he's got enough. Well, you know, when you're a billionaire, it's it's yeah. like you or I spending, you know, fifty or a hundred dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's got he's got a lot of really amazing things. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and of course, a month after he bought the drumhead, he also bought Ringo's first Ludwig Black Oyster drum kit too. I know. I was I was talking with Gary <laughs> about that. Right. Right. <laughs> So, um, so just in just in the drum head and the drum kit, he's got over four million dollars tied up. So yeah, he's he's dropped a lot of money on it. I can't even imagine what Ringo must think uh, of these, you know, pieces of equipment. 
going for such large figures of money? Well, um, I was in touch with Ringo not long before the auction where the drum had sold. He was aware that I was putting it up for sale, and he had an interest in... Um, uh, we negotiated a little bit for a few days back and forth, let's, let's put it that way. But yeah. he, he had an aversion to um, paying a lot of money for something that just kind of got away from him in the 60s. Um, and, and actually how it got away was, I don't know if you know who Mal Evans was. I there. know who Mal okay. Evans. Okay. Um, well, Mal, somehow it ended up in Mal's possession and ended up going back to Mal's house, I guess, after it was replaced. Because shortly after the Sullivan Show, uh, the next big project the Beatles did was the Hard Day's Night film. And the drum, the drum kit that was used on the Ed Sullivan Show is the one you see in a Hard Day's Night. But, but it's got a different head. Yes, big, right. The rule of thumb was every time a new film or a new major tour was done, the drum head would be replaced. Because, you know, it gets nicked up and scuffed and scratched and things like that. And they wanted a brand new pristine drum head for the movie. So the Sullivan head came off and drum head uh, number three, which is as it's known now, went on the drum head. So, so I, w- I want to ask you a question about, I think it's drum head number five? Yeah, the, uh, the Shea Sadie. Yeah. Right. So when you look at all the Beatles drum heads, they all look, you know, pretty, pretty similar what the hell happened with number five, and why does it look so weird? Uh, num- because number five is the only one that was not painted by um, um, Edwin Stokes. Edwin Stokes was a sign painter who worked around the corner from Drum City in London, who painted all the Beatles drumheads, all the you know the seven drop tees. In the case of number five, the Beatles were preparing to come over to the United States to do that tour, and of course do the other, the, the Sullivan Show as well, but then the next day the tour was going to kick off. And uh, I guess it was a last-minute thing. Maybe, I don't know exactly what the situation is. Maybe Eddie Stokes is away on vacation or something like that, or for whatever reason he couldn't get a drumhead done to them before... Uh, they were leaving to come over to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So Epstein contacted Ludwig in Chicago, and the Ludwig Drum Company uh, made that one. And when, and that one is silk-screened, as far as we know. It's not hand-painted. Because when they silk-screened it, they also did something like three or four other drum heads at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is known because on occasion one of those other three or four has come up for auction. Uh, not as being an original Beatle drumhead, but as being one that was made at the same time by Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why that one is very different looking. Yeah. Well, it, it's... Weirdly, it is my favorite of the drumheads. Really? That's interesting, because to me it's the ugliest, but everybody's oh. different, I guess. Well, that's kind of why I like it. Okay, sure. I, it, I can see that. You know, to me, it just looks like the Beatles at the top of their game. Hmm. You know, whenever I see it, yeah. I think of Shea Stadium and that 75,000 people. Right. Well, you know, of the seven, you know, I also hand paint replicas of those drum heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I've replaced them for Ringo, but that that's another story you can get into if you want later. Yeah. Uh, but of, of the ones that I hand paint... 
The most requested one is the Ed Sullivan drumhead. The yeah. second most requested one is the Shea Stadium drumhead. So a lot of people think the same as you do. Well, that's because number four and six kind of look the same. Yeah, they're, they are very similar. Right. It, it, it got to the point where it's, it's basically just the Beatles drop T logo you see today on most merchandise. They, they've finally got it down. Right. Four and six, uh, with a little bit of number two thrown in, is what has become the standard logo. You're right. Well, number two was used as the main one for many years uh, in merchandise. With like that twenty greatest hits album, it had that one. I think the original Past Masters. Right. Um, normally, when a drumhead is was reproduced for a Beatle product, um, yeah, you're right. Early on, it was very often the, the solid. In fact, when the photo, in terms of like even the album covers, when you would see an an illustration or a photograph of the Beatle logo on an album cover, it was always the Sullivan head. Exactly. And it it appears on four different Beatle albums, and none of the other seven do at all. Mm -hmm. Um, The Beatles' second album, Beatles for Sale. um, It's on Beatles for Sale? Oh, the uh, Inside Gatefold. Inside Gatefold is a picture from the Washington Coliseum show, right. Mm -hmm. So um, so you're right. Mm Mm-hmm. But, but it's, that, that's always been my favorite, too. And, you know, I would have said that even if I never owned it. I just love the fact that it, the big, thick, heavy letters. I thought oh, it was yeah. fucking, but anyway. Well, that, that is my second favorite of the bunch. Cool. Because I, I, I love the thick. I love right. the thick letters. Right. And the weird-looking <laughs> the. Because it, it looks a little weird when you look at it. Well, it runs uphill for one thing. It's yeah. not great, um, and yeah, it's very, uh, very hand drawn. Yes, no doubt. So, anyways, I want to go back to asking about you. Okay. What do the Beatles mean to you? Wow, that's an awful broad general question. Uh, I know. It's my favorite. Um. Well, they've obviously been a major part of my life. I don't know if anything would have replaced them had they not happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's It's hard to answer a question like that. They, you know, they have something to do with every single day of my life. Every day. Mm-hmm. Even, it could be, even if I don't hear the music, it could be something very small or... Uh, I, it, it's it's a very tough question to answer. I don't know what my life, how different my life would have been without them. Let's put it that way. Okay. Do you have any uh, particular favorite memories involving the Beatles throughout the years? Um, I guess the best memory would have been those first three Ed Sullivan shows. Especially right after the first one, because then I knew that the next two weekends were going to be the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess just kind of gearing up for those next two weekends was exciting. It was, and 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 as a little kid, from that point on, whenever the Sunday paper would come and the TV listings book would be in the Sunday paper, 
the first thing I would go to when the paper came on the doorstop was to rip out the the, the TV listings and see if the Beatles were going to be on Ed Sullivan. Because, you know, I was a naive little kid. I thought, wow, they could be on any Sunday. You yeah. never know. Well, but so, the Ed Sullivan show after that had a lot of, like, really good guests. Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, the Dave Clark Five were on, like, sure, a billion the, times. The Stones, I mean, it was a little bit of everybody. I mean, you really got a good musical education of whatever was currently happening in pop music by watching the Sullivan show. <laughs> so, um, so I forgot what your original question was, but... Oh, memories. Those are probably the neatest memories of those, are those first three shows. Um, but I never saw them live. Uh, I do remember the, the one night they played in Baltimore. I lived in the suburbs of Baltimore, and they played at the Baltimore Civic Center on September 14th of 64. And I vividly remember that night, but there was nobody in my family that was you know, going to take a little snot-nosed kid to the Baltimore Civic Center to see a show like that. Yeah. Um, in fact, my mother, who's uh, 91 years old and is still alive today, uh, says her biggest regret is the fact that she never took me to see them as a little. If she had any idea what my life was going to be like, you know, from the age of 10 on, she said she would have made it a point to do that. But, you know, back then it was just a fad and the Beatles yeah. were going to be gone in a year and, you know, it wouldn't have mattered. Nobody realized the lasting impact that they were going to have. So, so anyway, I do remember that night they played in Baltimore. I remember going to school the next day. I was in third grade. And I think there was a girl in there whose older sister had taken her to the show, and everybody was making a big deal about it. And I was extremely envious and jealous. And uh, uh, I do I remember that day in school because of that. Um, other big, th you know, I don't know. I guess other than that would have been um, maybe the the first time I never saw the Hard Day's Night in the movies for pretty much the same reason. So the first time I saw it was when it finally came on television, and I don't know when that would have been, but I would imagine that was late sixties, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, so it would have been things like that or, or actually getting an album at Christmas that I'd never heard or something. So, um, and kind of bouncing or, or in a similar vein to that broad question, why do you think the Beatles still matter? Why do you think they still matter? Uh, because of the quality of the songwriting and the harmonies, um, I think that's why the music has such an enduring and lasting effect. Um, certainly generations, you know, uh, all the way down the line are taken with the music uh, to, to at least some degree. In fact, it's amazing how much the Beatles turn up in popular culture now. It's, it's almost every day watching television there seems to be some kind of uh, Beatle reference. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so... Um, I guess it's the quality of the music, uh, you know, and the songwriting. Uh, and that's what it comes back to. It always comes back to the music. Oh, yeah. It definitely always come back to the music. I mean, you kind of had to live through it to just realize how cool they actually were and how much they dominated, um, uh, you know, the, the radio station playlists and all that. I mean, everything in the 60s was about the Beatles. Uh, and And... And certainly in your case, not being alive then, it's kind of probably hard for you to wrap your head around uh, the magnitude of how much they dominated things. But 
Um, but but it really was all Beatles all the time, and everybody else was a distant second. So it, it made the whole decade really, really interesting. I'm going to hit you with some quick fire questions. Sure. Who is your favorite Beatle? George Harrison. Correct answer. <laughs> you know why? Because he's the most honest one. Yeah. He is the most honest. Whenever... Whenever That's why Harrison, he liked the Ruddles so much. Right, right. Yeah. Whenever Harrison was asked a question in an interview, you always got exactly what he truly felt. And I don't think you got that. You certainly didn't get that necessarily with Lennon. You never get it with McCartney. No. You get From McCartney, you get what he wants you to think. Yeah. Uh, and while I think Ringo is, is pretty honest, in, in a similar way to George, Harrison just you know, wore his honesty on his sleeve all the time. And I love watching old interviews with George Harrison. So, yeah, he's definitely my favorite. What is your favorite Beatles song today? Oh, my gosh. Probably the one that's the most time has passed since I've heard it. Uh, um, jeez. I've had to start uh, specifying, like, because everyone's like, oh, it could be a different song every day of the week. And so now I have to just say, what is your favorite Beatles song today um wow it's gosh that's a hard you, you can pick top five if if it's too hard all right i would say i feel fine um hold your hand from the early days um i think maybe revolution you know from the sort of white album period um here Comes the Sun from Abbey Road. So that, that gives you sort of a handful. They're all very different, but, you know, there's there's not too many of them that I didn't like. Once in a while, you know, they would record something, something obscure on an album that I didn't like. There don't are don't get too ahead. Okay, because I was going to say. Fun. Right. What is your least favorite Beatles song? Um, probably... Um, well, I didn't really like some of the abstract thing yeah. from the White Album, you know, Revolution Number no. Nine and things like that. I, I I barely consider that a song. Yeah, well, and I would too. Okay, but it was on an album, so I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. Um. Uh, I think. Oh, what's the name of the song? Please, please don't say Mr. Moonlight. I was just gonna. Yes, Mr. Moonlight certainly in the top five. I don't think there's many Beatle fans that like Mr. Moonlight. I love Mr. Moonlight because it's okay, so well, cheesy. Yeah, well, okay. That definitely would make my list. Uh, oh, I'm crushed. Let me see. Um, and I, and there are a few that I just, uh, you know, I wouldn't even listen to on the radio anymore. And it's things like Hey Jude. Yeah. Not that I didn't love Hey Jude when it came out, but I, I've heard it enough. Yeah, yeah, I don't really want to hear it anymore. So there are a few songs that fall into... It's like that, that. Let It Be, The Long and Winding Road. Yes, exactly. Yesterday. Yes, I've heard them enough, and it's okay if I actually don't hear them anymore. And actually, nowadays, it's Come Together is one of them. Yeah, I, w I would agree with you. Right. Yes. Yeah. What is your favorite Beatles album? Uh... Um, well, I kind of, I kind of classify their, I can't give you just one. From the okay. early rock and roll stuff, I would say probably, 
Uh, and if you're talking about you talking about American albums, or uh, it could be from either. Okay. Uh, I would of the early stuff. I would either Meet the Beatles or the Beatles' second album. They're about neck and neck. I I, think. I'm not There's a big fan of the Americanized versions, but I am a big fan of the Beatles' second album. Okay. It's uh, such a good rock and roll record. Yes, and that, and that's that's pointedly my my point actually is it, it's a great rock and roll early rock and roll Beatles sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Rubber Soul because it's so acoustic and so well written. Um, and of my, of the later stuff, I think easily it would have to be uh, Abbey Road. I think because mm-hmm. you know that was the Beatles, not at their best, but the last time they tried to cohesively work together as a band and it sounds. Are you talking about Abbey Road? Yes. Oh, well, I don't, I think I would disagree that it wasn't necessarily Beatles at their best. I think it probably was the Beatles at their best in my opinion. Well, uh, I'm not saying that as an insult to Abbey Road. <laughs> Cause I, I, I think Abbey Road is, you know, top three. Okay, sure. Oh, okay. Right. Right. But I, I, the Beatles weren't when they started at their best, you know, working with uh, George Martin in the studio, they kind of got back to where they were and were working cohesively together again. Yes, correct. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. It was a, a, a long way from the Let It Be album. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it was a knee jerk reaction to the Let It Be album. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I would agree. Mm-hmm. And now, what is your least favorite Beatles album? <clears throat> um, I would say probably, um, probably Please Please Me. But that, I guess, I guess a, in that effect, I agree with you. That's a very acceptable answer. Right. Yes, right. it, it's it's a bit of a controversial one, but I agree with you there. Yes, yeah, second would be I think Let It Be, but I exactly I definitely, exactly. I definitely <laughs> listen to Let It Be more than Please Please Me. Yeah, well, I listen to Please Please Me more than Let It Be, but those two are my least favorites. Right, I would agree. And now it's my favorite part of the show where I get to turn it over to you. What would you like to plug? <clears throat> Um, well, I mean, Beetlesuits.com, obviously. Um, actually, no, there is something I like to plug. I have three partners, um, and I'm sure you're probably aware of this, Ethan, but mm-hmm. uh, I have a touring exhibit uh, of Beatles memorabilia. It's myself and three other major collectors in this country. And have this is the, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles exhibit, right? Correct. Right. Um, in fact, the website for the exhibit is uh, fab4exhibits.com. And we've been touring since um, uh, winter of 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2014. Uh, we just closed up recently in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we're on hiatus right now because of the COVID situation, but we'll be opening up again in Chicago maybe this fall or at least by uh, the early part of next year. Do you plan um, on coming to Canada? We haven't been to Canada yet. Uh, it, it may pop up on the itinerary, sure. Uh, we have no reason why we would not exhibit in Canada, but we haven't been to... What, what area, where are you? Are you in, like, Toronto? Or? I, I live just outside of Toronto. 
Okay. Um, Toronto would definitely be a city we would be interested in, yes. But I can't say that, that you know, that has been worked out or is particularly on the itinerary. But, okay. yeah, you never know. Yeah. Uh, but, anyway, the website tells you about some of the artifacts that are part of the exhibit. All of my major pieces are part of the exhibit. And um, typically what happens is we, we go into a city for about a three-month period and we set up in a gallery or uh, an, a museum. Uh, we're there for three months and then we go on. Although a couple of the um, uh, exhibits have actually lasted for six months, so it kind of depends. Mm -hmm. But um, if, if if I were going to plug something, that would definitely be it. it. It's a it's a great. It's really nice because two of my partners, well, myself and one other partner, specialize more in the one of a kind pieces, like the suits and and clothing and um, yeah instruments and all that and then my other two partners are the two biggest collectors in terms of the mass produced merchandise from the 60s uh they have these massive collections of that so our exhibit is about a 5,000 square foot uh, area exhibit and it's a mixture of both things that were owned and worn by the beatles as well as all the mass produced stuff from the 60s so it's really nice really interesting mm -hmm. And of course, Beetlesuits.com. If you if you haven't heard of it yet, you've been living under a rock. Right, and actually, I we also do replica or not? We I suppose it's me because I'm the one who does them all. Um, I hand paint the drop tea drum heads as well as the the pepper drum heads and the love drum head, etc. But mm -hmm. um, uh, I I do exact recreations of the drum heads. I age the drum heads so the patina matches the original Sullivan. Uh, drumhead patina from 50 years ago, and uh, and that all happened as a result of uh, Ringo being asked uh, back in 2013 by the Grammy Museum out in LA. They wanted to do an exhibit on Ringo's life, but obviously what they really wanted was an was an exhibit um, on his Beatle years. Obviously, don't worry, this is a dog friendly podcast. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, my my dogs were just running through the kitchen. Yeah. So um, um, the centerpiece for that exhibit was going to be the drum head from the Ed Sullivan show. Um, but, of course, Ringo didn't have the drum head for the front of it because I owned it at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was contacted to make a, uh, an exact replica of that drum head. And um, when I hung the phone up with them, it became obvious to me that I couldn't take a brand new drum head out of the box and do the graphics and send yeah. it out for them because it was going to go in the front of a 50-year-old battered drum kit. So I, I spent a couple weeks figuring out how to relic it and make it match the patina of the original head that I had in my possession. And then I sent it out, and Ringo was very happy with it, and I ended up doing three more drum heads for that particular exhibit. And then since then, Ringo has had me do all the other uh, drop tees, so he has one of the entire set. Because, as you know, Ringo doesn't have any of the originals. Yeah. So, um, so that's Are one of the Are any of the other originals still out there? Uh, yes. Well, we can go down the list if you want. Number one is in McCartney's possession. Okay. Be because in the early 70s, McCartney borrowed drum kit number one from Ringo to record his McCartney album. I think and he it's actually, actually on the wall at his studio. I've yes, seen it, is, it is. It is now. He has since given the drum kit back to Ringo, minus the drum head, and it is up on his wall in his studio. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is the Sullivan head, which we just talked about. Yeah. Number three is the head from A Hard Day's Night. 
uh, which has never turned up. It's never gone to public auction. Nobody seems to know where it is. I guess it's hanging over somebody's fireplace somewhere, but yeah. they're very quiet about it. Mm -hmm. uh, number four does exist. Um, it's owned by a New York collector. Uh, I don't know whether he would want me to give his name out. You, you know, don't have to give his okay, name. Well, but, um, but that one came to light probably about 10 years ago. It had been in the possession of a guy named Bob Bonus, who was the Beatles stage manager for their American tours. Mm -hmm. Somehow it was given to him, and he had it for a number of years, uh, a number of decades, actually. Um, he got sick and passed away. And, uh, the, and the family ended up selling it to a collector in New York. So that's where that one is. Uh, number five, nobody knows where it is. Um, the drummer for Conan O'Brien. Um, Max Weinberg. Max Weinberg has gone on record as saying that he has it. But you know what? A lot of people kind of in the know don't believe that Max actually has it because he won't. he refuses to photograph it or actually show it to anyone, and um, and the, the common thinking is is that Max has a drumhead very similar to it, but doesn't have the actual one, that it, and he probably knows it. It could be, you know, one of the Ludwig silk screened. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and uh, number six uh, is the one that was destroyed, and I don't know if you know the story behind that, but somebody broke into Ringo's drum cases when they were in the storage room at Abbey Road in 1969 mm -hmm. um, and, um, and made off, well, they didn't make off with number six, they opened the case up and they took a sharp instrument like a razor blade or something yeah. and they razor bladed the Beatles out of the front of the drum head leaving just a big empty hole um, and, uh, and it was discovered when they when the Beatles went in to start recording the White Album, that's when they discovered, it wasn't 69, but obviously it was earlier. Mm -hmm. um, when they started recording the White Album, that's when they discovered that, that number six was destroyed. Number seven is the one that you see in the, the opening images of the Let It Be film when Al Evans is holding it. And of course, it never actually goes on the front of a drum kit, but, um, yeah. uh, but you have to count it as an original Beatle drum head because it's in the film. And it, well, know, they actually the used that head in the uh they did a video for here comes the sun uh about a year or so ago and i was really pleased they used the number seven head as the head on the ringo's kit oh okay really i'm unaware of that the yep. video here comes the sun uh it was you know kind of computer animated oh 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 okay no, oh, got... it's not the real thing i think okay i thought you were talking about the real thing right no um, so, uh, so nobody knows where number seven is either. So it's number three and number seven that the whereabouts are unknown of the other ones. Well, I guess actually number five as well. So yeah. three of them are out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. But anyways, people can find you at Beetlesuits.com. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Russ, I just want to, I just want to thank you for bearing with me with these technical difficulties. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, I think we it was a good episode. It was a very fast hour. I just looked at my watch and realized, oh, my gosh, it's, we have been talking for an hour. It, it flies by. I, we had a great time. Thank you, Ethan. I time, appreciate the conversation. Time flies by when you're having fun. And to there everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. 
Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.